So, so Brian, are you playing what I'm playing? Oh, dude, are you kidding me? Pokemon Go? Everybody's Unbelievable. playing that. No, 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 not Pokemon Go. Genghis Khan Go. You haven't played Genghis Khan Go yet? G- Genghis Khan Go? Oh, it's so good. Genghis and the Congo? No, no, no. Genghis Khan Go. Okay. It's also augmented reality. It's fantastic. You walk around the neighborhood, you find all these little stops, and you get to pillage them, and you burn them to the ground. People run around. It's a lot of fun. And then as you're walking about, you run into various, you know, warriors and tribal leaders and warlords, and you can kill them and get, you know, experience points. Or, or and here's the brilliant part, you capture them, and then you use them to fight other warlords. It's freaking brilliant. Um, I, that seems really aggressive. I'm really not know. feeling that. That sounds kind of awful, actually. Yeah. No, 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 no. But here's the thing. Here's the kicker. I, I don't think you're going to be able to convince us. At level 10, you get a pony. <gasps> I want a pony. I want to download that. Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Brian Moriarty. I'm Sarah Ashley. And I was not prepared for that. I didn't realize, and usually we discuss nope. who's going to say that first, nope. and Brian's just like, nope! Chick the bull by the horns. Well, I was just Brian like, has... I haven't been here in a month, I'm just taking it. Yeah. Oh. oh, wait, 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 sorry, hold on. Yeah. And I'm Eric Brickmont. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I had to put my piece in You there. guys are missing all this. Sean just cut out some hilarious radio. Um, no, why don't we keep all that? No, well, that's stated. Yeah. Oh, is it? Yeah. Well, fine. That was intended for radio, Brian. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I know you haven't <clears throat> been here in a month, but uh, come on, get with the show. It's. I've been busy. I have been very, very busy with the acting. Your one-man stuff. show. Yes, as we said <laughs> yes, in the last I, episode. I did hear. Yes. Seven so, and a half <laughs> hours. Hours in Brian. Swedish, by the way, in Swedish. That's right. I, I didn't know Swedish beforehand, and I still don't. <laughs> but it's definitely something magical. Yeah. I think if Bergman were alive, he would probably hate it. Let me guess. It was just like you <laughs> speaking like the Swedish chef while like it's like me. squeezing like tubed caviar over like bread with sliced eggs and then and then having like lots of meatballs and just food. I know a lot about Swedish food. And that's just the first 15 minutes. That's yeah. right. Yeah. The entire second and act. And then he builds an Ikea shelf. <laughs> I do. That's the, the second half. And then the entire, which by the way, takes about three hours to do um i don't know because i timed it one night in tech but the second act is i'm in a rigorous game of parcheesi with death oh dressed as a swedish fish yeah no he kind of has still like the hooded cloak and everything no no no, no, you're the swedish fish Swedish fish. oh okay i was gonna say he was eating swedish fish the entire time no 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 you're dressed as that's the whole point (laughs) anyhow this is the worst two minutes of radio (laughs) We have ever recorded. Ladies and gentlemen, we are all working people. And it is Friday. It is a Friday. And we have been drinking. Yeah, we don't normally record on Fridays, but when we do, we like to drink whiskey. Yeah, it's been a hard week. Bourbon, to be more specific in this case. Yeah, it's been a hard week for all of us. So we're just, um, we're enjoying ourselves tonight. And that means that you guys get to enjoy the next two episodes. And what says TGIF, like... Mongol conquerors. Yeah. I mean, pretty much that's how I spend every Friday's. Right, don't you? Talking I mean, about conquering and pillaging. Ta- talking about I cons, do. you know. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, Making a pro and con list. Well, hey, 
So, oh, oh my god really oh wow okay so before we actually get into it let's take a quick moment sarah yeah how are you i know you've had a rough day i've had well i've had a rough week i've had a very rough week i took last week off work so coming back to work was mm. like everything was dumped on me and so I work in fundraising, and I just actually wrote the largest grant proposal I've ever written. Like, that's impressive. For the largest that's amount awesome. for grant money that I've applied for. Like, I've gotten private funding that's been more than that, but it was really huge. And then I have, like, five other proposals lined up that I need to knock out, like, really fast. So it's a little daunting right now. <laughs> um, and I'm also pet sitting for people and getting clawed to sh by a... Oh, yeah, beep. That's Sorry. right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> whoopsies. Uh, getting clawed up by a bottle baby kitten. Um, every single time I try to feed her, she's like scratching me to death. So Bottle you know. fed. Yeah, she's she's a bottle baby. Not kept within the bottle. Well, no, ladies no, 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 and gentlemen, no. we might break the three bleep rule tonight. Oh, if I've been drinking, absolutely we will. Yeah. Just saying. Get ready for it. Eric. We also might break the three Star Trek uh, joke rule. Yeah. Considering we have... There was a Star Trek joke rule? I, I just assume there was. I always try to keep it to a minimum of three. Um, he, he gauges it by our level of annoyance, that's basically. Right, that's right. Anyway, but Eric, how are you? I'm not feeling as much of the effects of alcohol as Brian is. I'm doing great. But you also have... That's your superpower. You can't get... Yeah, really, right. I don't. I don't get drunk. So for those who don't know, Eric has a really amazing superpower, which is he really can't get drunk. Yeah, we, a, we've tried. Yeah. Boy, have we tried. I went to a Quinciera once and I had a half a bottle of tequila, three cups of fermented cactus alcohol and a, and a beer. And uh, I was fine. So how is fermented what you're, what you're basically cactus? Saying it's is lovely. That, it's called Polka. It's absolutely delicious. So what, what you're basically, for those who don't know, so tequila is distilled cactus liquor, agave. Yeah. You had the distilled stuff, the undistilled stuff. Yeah. And then a four beers, which for no, most no, people. I had a beer. Just one a beer. beer. Okay. One beer. Okay. Still did does nothing. It, does it taste like kind of like well, like chlorophylly kind of like it's planty? It's kind of milky, actually. How do you okay. know what chlorophyll tastes like? <laughs> because I've had like weird vegan fruit juices that have chlorophyll in them. Oh, okay. Yeah. And of course, this brings us all to tonight's topic. Oh yeah. We have no. So you're the segue mistress. How do <laughs> oh, you? How do we um, get there? Well, fermented cactus stuff comes from deserts. Mm. You know what's also deserty? is the steppe region of Asia. And tonight, we're going to talk about a very influential person from the steppe region of Asia, and that would be Genghis Khan. Yay! Well done. Yay! That, that deserves a tink. Yeah, yeah. well, let's, let's Tinks all around. Tink, tink and a drink. <laughs> that was a three-step segue, ladies and gentlemen. That ah, was... step! You said uh, it! Okay. That was... <laughs> Awesome. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to be talking about Genghis Khan, otherwise known as Genghis Khan. If or you... Temujin, as he was known. Temujin, yeah. Um, however, uh, Genghis Khan is what we call him usually in the Americas because, you know, people butcher his name and stuff like that. But Genghis Khan is um, what most scholars will use uh, when talking about sure. him. But yeah. he was originally born as Temujin. And uh, he actually comes from a very interesting lineage. Uh, his great-grandfather was Kabul Khan who actually was the person who uh, kind of created the first sort of confederacy of nomadic tribes in this region of Asia. Yeah. And 
not to say that they were unified by any stretch, but that they kind of had an understanding that they were all similar peoples in a similar region who were kind of sharing similar similar lifestyles. Not unlike the ancient Greeks. Yes. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And, and you know, this is a extremely harsh environment to live in. The Mongols had to contest constantly against, you know, the, the, the beating winds of the steppes as well as the extreme variations in temperature from extremely hot to extremely yeah. cold. Uh, there's not a whole lot of vegetation, mm-hmm. not a lot of fertile ground. Uh, and so they had to live as nomads because uh, it, it just didn't um, cater was, to an agricultural lifestyle. No, it's not. It's not conducive to sedentary yeah. sedentary right. life and, and, the, and the there's people of mongolia there's still a lot of nomads who live mm-hmm. in this fashion who live yeah. in tents and move with their herds and as a result the the mongols even at the height of their empire never really established these huge long-lasting cities yeah, yeah and this is not uncommon to just asia if you look at uh, palestine or the middle east in general the bedouin tribes Sure. are the exact same way. You yeah. know, you kind of have to because you have to go where the moisture is, basically. Mm-hmm. That's right. And I think that really helps to carve out the personality mm-hmm. and the determination of these tribal leaders, these yeah. khans. Yeah. Right? And let's let's also clarify the, the titles here. So khan, which is used not just by Chinggis, but by all of anybody the other who's, khans. Anybody who's a leader of their own clan or their own horde. Exactly, yeah. mm-hmm. is, a, is a tribal leader. Totally, and there are other parallels to this too. I mean, if you think of the, almost like the um, the Celts, <clears throat> all, all the way up until really the the English conquering Ireland, each kind of county had its own kind of monarch. Right, yeah. they were called the king basically, mm-hmm. but it's it's essentially that same kind of clan mentality, yeah. like she was saying. Yeah, I would say for those who watch Game of Thrones, it's kind of like the Calisars, right, and the cows of each Dothraki can, tribe. Can I point something out? <laughs> Go for it. Brian just caught up on Game of Thrones and, and like recently, and now it's all he can talk about. Well, <laughs> if you, and there's a reason for that. There's it's a reason so for that. damn it's good. It's so good. It's, it's so damn so good. good. And I feel so silly for taking so long to catch up on it. By the way, season finale, amazing. But um, if you really think about it, George R.R. R. Martin is borrowing from a ton of different historical parallels sure. for, I mean, you can obviously see like the high sept as a as an allegory for the catholic church and its corruption and all that stuff and the Re- the protestant reformation with the high sparrow and all that stuff sure you can see and you absolutely especially the fact that they were these mounted warriors the dothraki have so many parallels mm-hmm. to the mongolians so well, it would be wrong the, if we didn't make that pop yeah, and even the parallel. region that they live in of of Easteros kind of being that same type Essos, of, yeah, yeah yeah yes uh so anyway point being uh, Brian was late to the party and now it's all he can talk about. So, and there you go. <laughs> but I'm still, yeah. No, it's great that you're excited about it. It's, it's awfully charming. <laughs> can you, well, that's okay. can you be the life of the party if you're late to the party? No. No? No, sorry. Nope. Yeah, that, that ship sailed. You're the late comer. You, you got there when everybody else is starting to get a little tired and they're like, ugh, now we have to keep this party going for another couple it's hours because be Brian that showed party up. If yeah, that, that ship <laughs> sailed to Bravos and it's not coming back. <laughs> well, damn. <laughs> So, so, um, and then so let's actually skip a few generations away from Kabul Khan and go into uh, Genghis Khan's father, Genghis Khan's father. So his father Yusuke, who was a a Khan in his own right, a tribal leader, mm-hmm. um, ends up falling out of favor with 
his rivals. Yeah. To the point where he ends up getting poisoned and taken yeah. out of the picture this way. Well, like many uh, leaders do. Yeah. And, well, and the reason why he was poisoned, let's go ahead and clarify, was because he just straight up, I mean, as was common-ish practice at the time, um, he he stole his wife from uh, the Tartar tribe. Right. And that didn't really um, fall into favor with them uh, because it wasn't uh, an arranged marriage the way that um, it was most commonly done. However, it wasn't completely uncommon for people to just steal their wives away. Um, So he stole his wife, um, had a bunch of kids with her. And then by the time that um, Genghis Khan, at this time he's he's known as Temujin. That's his his given name. Uh, Temujin was uh, living... In a different tribe, he was six years old, and he was living in in the tribe of his future wife. Um, He was already betrothed to her, and he was kind of basically working for the lead family there um, just till he was going to turn 12, and then he could get married. But then he got news that his father was poisoned because the way the system is set up there. If somebody offers you food, you have to accept. It's rude not to. And so um, while Temujin's father was traveling, Yusuke was invited to eat with the Tartar tribe. He had to do it. He was poisoned and he was killed. So then Temujin returns home to be with his mother and his siblings um, until he was of the marrying age. But at this point, he kind of went back so he could claim his right to be the leader of the clan well he, he does but there's not much of a, a role of leadership in store for him not yet no he ends up living in more or less uh abandonment yeah uh, because the tribe that they were a part of disbanded. then straight up yeah. left them because they were really annoyed with what yasuke had done and how he was kind of angering other following tribes yeah and this this was extremely difficult but a very uh, important time towards his development because mm-hmm. they were living off of whatever they could find around them. So they were essentially yeah. scavengers at this point. Scavenging and hunting, yeah. And it was on a hunting trip that that Temujin actually ended up allegedly, this is based on his his account, um, he murdered his half-brother, his older yeah. half-brother. Begtir. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, the legend tells that he um, finds Begtir in the forest hoarding food that he's keeping from everybody else. And when he confronts him about it, he refuses to share it with his brothers and sisters and, and even his own mother. And Genghis, in such disgust, draws his bow and and, and wounds him. And uh, the writings tell us that he then dies of his wounds. Yeah. So rather than saying, yeah, he just straight up killed him, yeah. he, he wounds him in such a way that it eventually leads to his death. Yeah. Um, and that's... Really important because that idea of hoarding food to yourself and not sharing with others ends up playing a fairly interesting role later on in Genghis's life. Yeah. And and kind of the rules that he likes to live by. It's so fascinating because if you look at the parallels, again, making a parallel to Middle Eastern culture, uh, there's the law of hospitality. It's, it exists. And then if you live in, and maybe it's just this thing that you parallel you see amongst desert societies. Mm-hmm that come up but it's the idea that pretty much look we all know we're in this harsh environment yeah we all need to survive Mm -hmm. so if i've got some food to spare you're welcome to have it basically yeah yeah um and why that's such a big deal if that law is yeah broken yeah so 
Right. And that's, you know, exactly what leads to his father's death, too, mm-hmm. is this refusal yeah. to, to eat with somebody because you're yeah. giving what keeps you alive and you're sharing that in goodwill. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So it's the yeah. ultimate insult. Well, which is why he didn't refuse, but it ended up being his demise anyway. Yeah. Um, so then Temujin uh, basically is kind of in charge of his family for a little while um, until he turns 16 and then he marries uh, Borta. And Borta was the the girl that he was betrothed to. He They still honored that, um, came with a nice little dowry and all that good stuff. Um, and then Borta, on their wedding night, gets abducted yeah gets captured and taken away by another tribe who was um very very much interested in getting vengeance for the things that temujin's father did um and the leader of that tribe the the Merkit tribe ends up taking uh, borta as his wife in the sense that he raped her um (laughs) because that makes it official um at that point so that's just the way the the system was kind of set up at that time. Um, and then Temujin was obviously upset by this, that his wife just got stolen. Um, and he actually is able to rally a bunch of people. I think about, what I hear, 20,000? I don't know if that's true. but he That's was, a lot. That's a lot. I don't know if he was able to rally that much or if that was after the fact. I think that was after because I don't believe that was quite that many. Okay, so, but he was able to rally some people on his side and go to the markets and basically steal back his wife. And when he does, um, eight months later, uh, Borta gives birth to um, her first son. Jochi. Jochi, or uh, Joch. Oh, that's right, it's Joch. Or Josh. Josh. I is silent. Sorry. So she gives birth to her first son, Josh, and... um, the heritage of Josh was always contested. Yeah. Temujin accepted Josh as his as his son. He said Josh is my son. He is my firstborn son. Um, even though it was most likely um, fathered by the Merkit chieftain. Um, and that's going to come into play a little bit later when Jangus comes to the point of having to figure out who's going to be his successor. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The whole Obadiah. Yeah. But, but the, the friendship and bond that he creates with Jumaka becomes something that would be very much uh, defining of, of his policies and his, his, his way of organization and collaboration. So this is the first time we're hearing this name. So why don't you go ahead and explain who Jumaka Forgive is. Me. So Jumaka was the, was the individual that he took partnership with. Yes. Uh, his his primary uh, partner in rescuing his wife. Yeah, and it's just a childhood friend of his. However, they develop such a deep friendship that they end up becoming blood brothers. Um, they d- actually do like a formal gift exchange with knuckle bones, which is um, very ceremonial, very powerful. And to become a blood brother with somebody in this in this culture, it, it this is one of those things that actually runs deeper than family. So it's it's really really important that these two aligned. Yeah. Um, and then it'll... And the revenge that they take on the Tartars is absolutely yeah. ruthless mm-hmm. and is typical of the approach to those who would betray or those who would offend, which was to just about wipe them off the face of the planet. Yeah. And this would be something that Genghis Khan would continue to uh, use as his primary method of intimidation and and terror in his campaigns against his enemies that proved to be so effective it would become the standard for all 
future cons of the Mongol Empire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and it was done on a scale that had never before been seen. So, you know, this was very public and ended up creating this 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 legend, this myth around him. And this is the beginning. This is the first formation, yeah. really, of Genghis Khan, the great warrior, the great conqueror. Yeah. Well, and then shortly thereafter, um, when he was about 20 years old, he was actually captured by another tribe. You know, things were kind of going nice and smooth for him for a while. Then he gets captured by um, a fellow tribe, and he's enslaved for a time being, but he ends up escaping with the help of a sympathetic captor. And he returns back to his clansmen and to Jamaica and his friends, and he forms a fighting unit. This is where he builds up an army. Hmm. Just like Jamie some... Lannister. <laughs> God, <Jesus> shut up. <laughs> <laughs> this is where he ends up building up an army of about 20,000 men. And this is where he starts really rising up and starts developing more and more of his power and starts doing so by conquering other tribes. Yeah. And basically posturing all over the place is it, really what it boils down it's crazy. to. Yeah. Well, you know, this brings him essentially to 1206. That mm-hmm. was the pivotal year for, for Genghis Khan because that is when he would be essentially declared the outright, you know, the 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 grand the, leader the great yeah, con it, essentially the we're almost mis- i feel like we're skipping a few steps there well okay he does have a bit of a falling out that we should yeah about. yeah so at this point jamica and and temujin have are are best buddies and they're kind of leading things but but temujin is kind of starting to anger some of his fellow um you know his fellow tribes leaders yeah and this is really because he is not fully respecting the clan system so when you're the leader of a clan you effectively hire all of your clansmen to be in positions of power within your tribe. But he doesn't do that. He yeah. actually starts pulling in other trusted people from this large army that he's built up. And he actually starts pulling in <clears throat> leaders from these other tribes to be in positions of power, almost basically then widening his own tribe and his own kind of horde. Yeah, well, not only that, but also people who are low-born, essentially, mm-hmm. who are yeah. not of the highest ranks. Yes. These are these are just common foot soldiers that yeah. he has a great deal of respect for that he elevates to mm-hmm. some of the most powerful positions. Yeah, and then so the people who were in higher positions before and the ones who you could kind of maybe consider more aristocratic yeah. are not pleased by this. They're like, what happened, what happened to our former nepotism? Well, these are roles not just reserved for them, but also that of their children. So he's yeah. really stealing these jobs mm-hmm. from their from their future prosperity and power yeah uh, but what yeah. he's doing is he's awarding it to people who are deserving of it and it, it's yeah. a big big break in tradition well yeah, yeah i mean Khan was known for being a very big supporter of meritocracy right yeah throughout his career as a conqueror but it's funny because you you say that and i immediately got that flashback to our napoleon episodes mm. just thinking about that mm-hmm. admiring the lower class having that charisma We'll talk about uh, some that foreshadowing later. Foreshadowing here. We'll talk yeah. about that later. Yeah. So <laughs> Eric and I had some pre-conversations before you showed up. <laughs> yeah. I, it has to be said. So yeah, um, and so this kind of puts Jamaka in a really interesting place because he still kind of respects these um, aristocratic people that he's been sided with for so long. Um, and what ends up happening is is Temujin has to have this kind of you know, I, I call it a come to Jesus moment. Clearly it's not Jesus, but, uh, <laughs> it's something in the, in the Tengris. Yeah. Yeah. He, he kind of has this moment where he says, clearly I'm destined for something here. Yeah. Clearly I'm building up this power. I've, I've got leadership skills 
and I want to use them. And so he consults with his wife, Borta, and his mother. And he says, you know, what do I need to do here? And Borta's like, uh, you need to take over. Yeah. Like, you need to seize as much control as you can. And his mother super encouraged it. And he basically was able to find one of Jamaka's fo- close followers who was willing to betray him and gave Temujin the end to basically destroy Jamaka's entire tribe and incorporate them into his tribe. Yeah. So he ended up breaking that big blood, blood brother, brother oath. Yeah. oath, which they had actually renewed at one point too, because you know apparently you renew your vows in Mongol culture in front of mm-hmm. both. They renewed it in front of both tribes, and he violated that. Mm. However, that's no bueno. It was one of those things where, arguably, did it for the greater good, and it's this point that he takes on the name. Genghis Khan and become, which roughly translates to universal ruler. Roughly, well, very roughly. Very, very roughly. Yeah. One of the interpretations of it is that it essentially means ocean. Yeah. And if you think about an ocean, especially to folks who are so landlocked like the Mongols, it's a ever stretching, you know, vast body that continues on forever. And, mm-hmm. and by being an ocean ruler, essentially one who covers and engulfs everything. everything right. He is to do exactly yeah. that. He's, yeah. he's not just controlling all of the tribes, but in his own mind, he is controlling the entire world. Yeah. yeah. Though some more liberal interpretations of it have said great con, which mm-hmm. is to say like essentially the great an, ruler well, essentially yeah. almost an emperor it's of sorts like with, a, within the tribes of his of the yeah but it's kind of like ayatollah it's the highest sure, of the high sure but it, but we want to be very clear that he never wanted anybody to be declared an emperor even yeah. when he was controlling freaking everything from the pacific all the way to russia he did not want anything to be he didn't want anybody to be named an emperor unless it was democratically chosen and neither did julius caesar but <laughs> we all sure. know how that worked out sure so. that's true mm, I dispute that but that's for another podcast <laughs> uh i will say because we kind of over we kind of brushed over it very quickly not intentionally mm-hmm. but it just kind of happened uh, i want to talk a little bit about genghis khan genghis khan excuse me the the you know deeply religious individual yeah you know, like many on the steps subscribe to, you know, the, the Mongol shamanism that was present. Yeah, it was called uh, Tengrism. Yeah. And it's got a, this whole, it's a very fascinating combination of shamanism, totemism, pantheonism. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's it's very incredibly unique to that region, I would say. Yeah. And it's it's a deeply personal religion as well. It's designed for the the you know, beholder of those beliefs to really internalize them and take them very deeply. And that's exactly what, you know, Genghis Khan was known to do. In fact, he would sometimes stay in his tent and pray and meditate for days before leading a major campaign uh, and would seek the advice of shamans and even just commune out there in nature by himself and just kind of let the epiphanies come to him this time to think about what his next move was going to be. But it was all very deeply spiritual to him. But he had this tremendous respect then also for others who felt that way but about other gods. Yeah. And it created a very secular empire that he would eventually pass on to his children, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. which was open and welcoming. And religiously tolerant. It was. And which yeah. made a lot of sense politically. That was a great move. Well, yeah. Happy because people are easier to conquer. And he ended up, his empire ended up controlling 
Muslims, Christians, uh, Buddhists, Confu- Confucius, like all Taoists these, and yeah, 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 and and everything basically that he just kind of considers like whatever. They're all sky gods to me. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> and, which, and that's what's fascinating is that he kept counsel. He consulted all of the above Christian missionaries, mm-hmm. um, Muslims. He can uh, Taoist. I think he had a Taoist monk. In his council at one point, too. It's just sure. like, not council, C-I-L-C. Well, one of the most famous. S-E-L. Primarily because he was also trying to find the key to, uh, you know, yeah. immortality. That's that, a whole other that's thing. That's a whole other thing. <laughs> well, yeah. So here he is. He's now considered Genghis Khan, ruler of all these tribes and of what is effectively Mongolia. And, and he's still considered to this day the founding father of Mongolia. Yes. Um, and they have high respect for him over there. So what's a girl to do next? Uh, I think <laughs> try to take over China. If there was a Genghis Khan the musical, <laughs> that is his I want song. What yeah. is a girl to do? Yeah. <laughs> what is a Khan to do? And well, <laughs> I don't even know where to go with that. Uh, and, and China at this time is very different than what I think many of our listeners who are unfamiliar with its history might be thinking of. This is not the large and powerful China that we know today. This was a, a fractured China, mm-hmm. predominantly uh, centered in the east, uh, eastern portion of Eurasia, Eurasia. And we're talking about three very distinct and separate empires with northern China uh, squarely in his sights. And this was a empire in its own right that was extremely powerful, that had a very old and long tradition of its history. It was... Um, considered to be a a, a more civilized mm-hmm. civilization if you yeah. will not not truly because we know that's that's just garbage these days no, but they consider but themselves to be they truly were, well civilized. they were sedentary yeah they were sedentary not nomadic that's right they had as much stricter patriarchy than the Mo- mongols they did had very sophisticated technology especially yeah. when it came to warfare yeah they had they had trebuchets they had, bombs, they had, they had explosives yeah. yeah all that whole and thing. more importantly didn't they also have writing too they also yes. had a written language mm-hmm. and um a surprisingly high rate of literacy as well. So this was a, yeah. a very interesting parallel between the two cultures. Yeah. I would say sophisticated, not necessarily civilized. Yeah, I'm, I'm, sure. I'm not using the term myself. I'm saying that's what, what, what others they would might. have perceived. That's what they considered themselves yeah. to be. Yeah. They were they considered themselves civilized and yeah. anyone outside yeah. of that to be uncivilized. So roughly around 1209, this is where um, Genghis Khan decides to take on uh, the area known as uh, Jircha. And that is, you know, a region kind of, it's below what was the Jin Empire at the time. Yeah. Um, and he basically, they I think they kind of pursued somewhere in the springtime so they could kind of take, take advantage of the better weather and the watering holes along the way. They were very well thought out. And they just kind of started attacking. And he, you know, with the way the armies were re- structured is he applied everything in columns. He sent columns mm-hmm. of armies or of troops, I guess, out to these areas and to start basically breaking down defenses and just working out from the outside in, um, sometimes from either side and kind of working towards like almost like pincers. Pincer effect, yeah. Yeah. And what was interesting about it is they had speed on their side. Right. Nobody could compete with their level of speed. Um, They were extremely skilled on horseback because they learned how to start shooting bows on horseback by the time that they were three. Yeah. Essentially, as soon as they could pick up a bow and pull a string, they, they were on the back of a horse. They threw them on the back of a yeah. horse. And yeah. they were and they were controlling those horses with just their legs. Yeah. I don't think even 
it, at the peak, I don't even think European military ever learned to do no mounted no. archery. No. Well, no, that's not true, but it, not to the skill and level of the of the Mongol right. Empire. Right. And what you'll find is that uh, the horses that they were using were not these great steeds and stallions that you think of. In, no, in, they were in not Western like Europe. well-bred horses. These were practically wild horses. Yeah, they're also a bit smaller. But what mm -hmm. that ends up doing is it actually gives you a much closer center of gravity. So you can really do some pretty amazing stuff on horseback and mm -hmm. not be risked, uh, not be at the risk of being kicked off or having your horse, you know, shot out from under you as easily because yeah. you're all kind of a bit lower yeah. to the ground. Yeah. Um, they're, they're also very fast. Mm -hmm. And and it's important to note that in almost every major battle that the Mongols engaged in, they were almost always outnumbered in terms of total troops. Mm -hmm. But it was those horses that truly gave them that advantage. Yeah. And they employed some really unique techniques as well. Uh, like diverting rivers? That's one of them. <laughs> in addition to this uh, faked out retreats, yeah. which was very uncommon at the time. You know, battles at this age were all about the, the the nobility of battle. Everybody meets together. You don't retreat. To retreat is almost more humiliating than to be defeated. Right. So the Mongols couldn't care less about this. And yeah. they would go in and fake out a retreat mm -hmm. to make them seem as if, you know, they were failing and, and, and retreating. In reality, mm -hmm. they had reserve troops that were coming in from the side. Yeah. Who then brought back the main force, who was no longer retreating. They just turned around and came back. Uh, and it was very confusing and disorienting mm -hmm. to not just the troops that they were fighting in China, but to what they would later bring when they started to invade uh, the Middle East and Europe. Yeah. And what was really interesting, too, is, um, you know, it took like 20 years yeah. to invade this region. But, you know, clearly we know that the Mongolian Empire expanded really quickly. And, and really, how was that possible? Well... Genghis Khan did something really interesting when he started taking over all these tribes and, and employing all these people to levels of power. He gave them independence. Yes. So unlike Napoleon, if you want to do the comparison, Napoleon was out there with every battle that he had. Genghis was not at every battle by any stretch. Nope. He was basically saying, y'all go out and just start conquering things in our name here and basically giving them independence to start reaching out and, and conquering more and more. So the... You know, front of, on Persia and trying to take over the Persian Empire was roughly under his command, but it was being acted out by other people who were other, you know, lower level people who were effectively generals, even though they didn't have the title of general. Yeah. So it was very interesting of how fast they were able to accomplish all of that. And the trust that he puts in these people is mm -hmm. equally paid right back to him yeah. because they're far less likely to want to betray him. Because they're essentially being given free reign anyhow, and they're reaping all the benefits of being his ally. Yeah. So why would you want to betray him at that point? It, it, it's absolute genius. Mm -hmm. And it was necessary. Yeah. Because the Mongol tribes, even completely united together, were not equaling a force large enough mm -hmm. to effectively rule over the empire of, of the size that they had. Yeah. Which would eventually be their downfall, just because right. they had expanded far too much. Yeah. But during the life of Genghis Khan... He was really able to to manage that, even mm -hmm. with the small number of people that yeah. he had. It, it really speaks to who he is. So um, what I want to talk about real quick yeah. is what happens when you get conquered by a Mongol horde, um, because that is a nasty after effect. Uh, yeah.
I mean, the brutality that I, I don't want to. It's one of those things where history kind of remembers him in one of two ways. He right. was either a really great leader or he was a terrible genocidal warlord. You in know, reality, he was both. He was both. Uh, a little from column A, a little from column B. And so the brutality with which he attacked all of these cities is not something to be ignored. Um, he wa- They went in truly killing in cold blood anybody who was trying to defy them or trying to fight back against them at or this point. Or even those who were just there. Even those who were just there. That's just the true. fact that the village was there yeah. was sometimes enough to have it eradicated yeah. off the face of the planet. Right. Every man, woman, and child. And there was something that he did very specifically was that he realized pretty early on that when you're going in and raiding a city, pardon me, when you're going in and raiding a city, uh, a lot of times the soldiers were taking taking loot and stuff as they were going along, and it basically kind of prevented you from really decimating that city. So he told everybody, you need to hold out. Don't put anything in your pockets yet. You need to make sure that you're going through and decimating this area first. Yeah. And any of those survivors that are left are either getting asked to join us or they will die. Yeah. That's it. There's It's one of two ways. That's all you get. Um, they were, they weren't into torture. They weren't into purposely maiming anybody. It was really what just you're joining us or you're not. You're either getting conscripted for our use. You're either, if you're women and children, you're very likely to, uh, become slaves. Yep. Yep. And if you're a man and you're uh, able-bodied, you're getting put in the army. And let's, let's clarify. This is not a, uh, a glamorous, uh, army, conscription no you know you're doing doing the brunt work yeah and you're essentially the first wave to be shot down Mm -hmm. by your former you know countrymen you're getting thrown (laughs) in with like the the battering rams and stuff like that yeah you're fodder or you die yeah or you die or you die there is something slightly honorable about at least saying like they're not there to maim or torture yeah at least if you're gonna die it's gonna be quick yep you know unless you're a woman Oh, in which case, you were raped, raped and you first. And then yeah, they you're well. You were taken in as the spoils of war, so yeah. you were you were raped and enslaved, most likely. Um, sometimes, if you depending on which horde you're with, uh, sometimes uh, that if you were raped and then taken on as a wife, one of many wives, because they had a, a polygamous system. Yeah. Um, and that would be better off because you would actually have some rights. And they weren't they weren't like particularly xenophobic or anything like that. They were perfectly comfortable accepting uh, people in. And and these people did sort of get integrated in in a fairly decent way. Um, it just wasn't you were never going to be higher ranked or anything like that. You're never going to be treated super respectfully. Well, there are a few exceptions, but the legends would have us believe they all do- revolve around yeah. Khan himself. Yeah. Um, actually, one thing that um, they did benefit from by, you know, raiding China was that they wound up with a lot of doctors who had Ch- who knew Chinese medicine. Yep. A lot of scribes who were A lot of scribes and a lot of engineers and people who knew how to create explosives. So those people were given a little bit more of better dues um, at that point because they were skilled. If you were a skilled artisan also that was getting conscripted into the tribe, you were allowed to perform your craft if it was a value. Chinggis records an incident in which he was in battle and the horse that he was riding on is brought down by an archer on the opposing side. Uh, throws him from the horse. He survives the battle, but later 
when there's his captives who have been brought before him, he says, are any of you the man who shot me out from under my horse? And one of them stands up and says, yeah, it was me. Mm -hmm. And Jingus uh, goes over and, and promotes him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And essentially brings him into his army, promotes him, and he ends up becoming one of his most trusted well, guys. And, and that's the thing that I think, well, one, spoke to his genius and his uh, charisma. I mean, obviously, all the horrible things he did doesn't forgive that. But his ability with people, and also, that again speaks to his firm belief in meritocracy, right? If you had yeah. something that you could contribute yeah. Yeah. that made you valuable... You were immediately mm -hmm. favored in that society, mm -hmm. but it w it was still really interesting though because the fear that these surrounding cities, who you know were hearing stories of the raids and everything like that, were starting to hear. Yeah, I mean the amount of fear was part of the reason why they were able to then take down these cities so easily. There were you know there are accounts of women throwing themselves off the roofs of houses as as soon as they knew Mongols were coming because they would much rather die than be raped. And, and this would be mean, maintained throughout yeah. the Mongol Empire for its entire existence. Mm -hmm. This reputation that they gained, largely deserved, but possibly also blown out of proportion in some cases, yeah. uh, was used as a very effective propaganda weapon absolutely and it reminds me of the vikings the vikings did the same thing mm -hmm. yes they went in and they raped and pillaged and murdered but they didn't do it to the extreme yeah. that they led everyone else to believe right and so there are some mm -hmm. suggestions that that may also be the same case here although there's a lot of there's really lot well of documented yeah. death here yeah. piles of bodies piles and piles uh literal piles of bodies yeah. and it's um isn't it funny how the people who could write tend to be the people who live yeah, there's that. Well, it was a helpful skill. Yeah. It was a very helpful skill. Um, and so after, you know, coming in and decimating a city, taking in your survivors, then what everybody did was they completely looted the area, brought all of the booty to um, whoever was the leader of that particular raid. Bring that booty. Bring that booty back. Um, even back all the way to Jengis himself. And it was then handed out evenly to all the people who participated in that raid and even yeah. to externals and their families and everything like that because that was the concept. It was almost very communistic kind of thing. Like well, <laughs> that it kind of everything belongs to everybody who contributes. That's right. And yeah. that's exactly how it is on the steps. And, mm -hmm. and, and that is the mentality that they use to build their empire. Mm -hmm. And that maintains, no matter how big the empire gets, yes. they still maintain this. It's yep. incredible. Mm -hmm. Even for 150 years, this goes on. It's, yep. it's pretty, pretty wild. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to add some context for our listeners, so we're talking about the years from essentially 1209 to 1211, where the areas north of of the Jin Empire have essentially been pacified and conquered, uh, and are paying either and or paying tribute and or joining the army and are actually out there fighting now. Mm -hmm. And that brings us into the Jin Empire with 65,000 Mongols marching on this area of northern China, uh, and with that. They were meeting fierce defiance. You know, mm -hmm. they at one point were fighting uh, a force twice their size, more than twice their size, and yet were continuing victory after victory after victory. Uh, but it was a slow campaign. Uh, it wouldn't be until 1215 that they would finally sack the city of what is now modern day uh, Beijing. At the time, it was known as Chengdu. Mm -hmm. Beijing is one of the capital cities in the world that has been renamed the most times really yes oh, it has had so many different names from so many different 
conquerors of mm-hmm. of the city. Sure. Um, but at the time of Chengdu, it was, and it was a penetrable fortress or veritable fortress. I mean, it was absolutely impenetrable. It was yeah. huge, massive walls. I mean, it wasn't impenetrable. They did it anyway. They did, but, but you know, <laughs> it took some effort. It, it took a long time because yeah. they had to essentially, for the first time in their history, use siege warfare. Right. And that's when those artisans and and engineers mm-hmm. uh who were who you just spoke of came into play yeah because they were designing catapults and bombs right. for the mongols now to use against persia well to use against first to test out in yeah. china yeah in northern china and then eventually... but became very very valuable when they were going against the persian empire yeah yeah absolutely well and it, it is really interesting because you also have to understand that while he was doing this um takeover of the Jin empire it was at the same time, he was distracted because there was a conquest going on trying to take down the Persian Empire, which was its biggest rival at the time because the Persian Empire was pretty freaking big, too. And just to create some context to what else is going on in the world, I mean, this is around just before the Fifth Crusade oh, yeah. is being yeah. Oh, yeah. launched. So. so he's not the only one being brutal out there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Everybody's being brutal right now. This the is... Eastern Hemisphere is kind of a mess right, yeah. <laughs> right now. Yeah. yeah. Where's or, the... Well, all little... of Eurasia is essentially in a nasty Turmoil. place. Yeah. 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 A little bit. And so, yeah, do you want to talk about then the, the Jin takeover? Or do you want to just stop with the Zundu and then move on to the Persians? Well, you know, there's so much to talk about within a short lifetime. We could spend an episode talking about each conquest if we really want yeah. to break it down that detailed. Uh, but it's important to, to mention that even though most of the Jim Empire fell. They just kept relocating their capitals and moving away from, from Genghis Khan. So, you know, I think it's a good place to sure. take a break in the east and let's start moving out west. Mm-hmm. And and with that, we also have a, a desire by Genghis Khan to expand his empire's influence, not just mm-hmm. its borders, yeah. but to send out emissaries and to send out mm-hmm. trade expeditions and start moving... Uh, westward in a way that hadn't happened at this point in history for a thousand years. Yeah, It wasn't really, um, the last time this really happened was with Alexander and his great empire moving in the opposite direction. Now mm-hmm. we have another great empire doing the same. Right. And and it's, and, well, I mean, Genghis, Genghis himself was going out to, you know, this area as well. This is where he meets the Taoist sage in 1219 seeking, you know, the secret of immortality. Um, and this is, you know, where they're trying to basically send out diplomats effectively along the Silk Road into this area. They created the Silk Road. Yeah. To be more specific. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, basically sending diplomats out and trying to basically say, we're coming. You can get on board now, but we're coming. (laughs) Like trying to like, trying to basically give them an easy way in and a nice um, option. And this kind of leads to uh, a really interesting chapter in in the the Genghis Khan saga here. Um, Whereas he ends up sending out a, a family member. Yeah. Who who was an emissary. Um, he ends up sending out a family member. Um, I believe it was one of his lesser sons, not a son from his first wife, but a son from like one of his other wives. And he sends him out to uh, Nishapur. In the Khwarezmian Empire, if I'm saying that right. I'm probably Khwarezmian, uh, province, province, not empire. Yeah. It's part of the Persian Empire. But um, he sends, sends him out on a diplomatic mission. Uh, just to kind of go chit chat with the leaders of the city and and kind of do a peace offering of saying you know hey you can join us or not, 
And um, the leaders there were just like, oh, we're not falling for this. And they end up killing his son and sending back his head. Yeah. Well, that's a firm message. And, that's and, a firm message and a big mistake. And preceding yeah. this, they, they had already they had sent another group of, of emissaries with a trade expedition that had been sent out. And they were sent back in humiliation. Mm-hmm. Their, bur- their beards uh, shaved and then burned right off of their faces. Yeah. Uh, which uh, beards, excuse me. So that's a, that's a pretty big insult uh, and sent them back in shame and humiliation. And then he sends a son to kind of sort things out and he ends up with his head chopped off and sent right back. So this is this is not a good way to start a relationship. Um, no. The shot you would really think at that point. Up. Yeah. You would think at that point negotiations have pretty much collapsed. Yeah. Yeah, and so basically what ends up happening is the wife of the, of the emissary um basically says, "Oh, now you done it." <laughs> and she she basically tells Jengis and his and his sons, "Y'all need to do something about this." Like, just go wipe them out. Don't even give them a chance. Wipe them out. Yeah. And they do. To excess. Yeah. There's, there is a a myth about it. I don't know how true it is. Um, especially because cities at this time were never larger than about one million people or so. But the, the story is that they wiped out Nishapur in one hour. And it was a city of 1.7 million people. Basically saying that the Congo, the Mongols came through, swept through the city, killed every man, woman, child, horse, dog, small mammal, everything. Anything that was alive in that city was dead within an hour, and they piled up the skulls in the streets and took everything and set one hell of an example. <laughs> yeah. Wow. There are some yeah. suggestions that 90% of the uh, Persian population may have been killed or sold into slavery. Mm. And that's... Yeah. That, that's region. probably a bit of an exaggeration. And that, and there's, so, between 70 and 90% is what I mean, I've and Nishapur was kind of like one of three specific cities that they did target. They target two other cities around that same time, but Nishapur was definitely one one large example. Yeah, but they went, over the, they went after the largest population mm-hmm. centers available. And yeah. people were taking refuge in these cities to escape the yeah. surrounding you know hordes that were traveling all about yeah. and pillaging all the smaller villages. Yeah. So they pretty much just corralled them into these death zones. Mm-hmm. I would love to make the Mel Brooks joke of they had it come. But they really didn't. But they didn't because you're talking about really complete annihilation. And completely innocent people who are getting annihilated. Exactly. People who had no No. probably knowledge that this Mm -hmm. meeting had even happened, let alone consent for it. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's it's definitely a darker footnote in his history. Yeah. And so it's really interesting because then basically... That's one of the biggest things that leads him to being able to take over the entire Persian Empire and just crumble it in a very short amount of time. Yeah. Very short amount of time. It's really crazy. I know I'm getting a little bit ahead here, but looking at, they have graphic maps online of seeing how the Mongolian Empire spread. Mm -hmm. And it's impressive. Yeah. It really is. Like, considering that the Eastern Hemisphere was essentially the known world at that point, Mm -hmm. the amount of landmass the Mongol Empire was able to accrue was just stunning. Yeah. Yeah. And and with that landmass and getting all of these different people who 
you know, people from many different cultures, yeah, all kind of living under this one conqueror at this point, kind of required a certain some systems. He basically was a really good administrator, <laughs> and so he set up some interesting systems. One of them being uh, known as Yasa, which is uh, was an unwritten code of law that was taken very seriously. I mean, punishment for most of everything was death, um, and it was. It was severely punished if you violated it, but at the same time, there were things that were kind of universally appreciated by all the people that he was there, religious tolerance being one of them. Um, another thing being, um, if you were an adulterer, it used to be um, under previous uh, rule and other patriarchal systems, um, if adultery occurred, it was only the woman who was punished by death. In Mongol culture and with this with the Yasa, it uh, if you got caught with adultery, both parties were killed. So all equal in the eyes of the law. <laughs> I guess. But then that also begs the question of if you were conquering and you took on a new wife, that wasn't considered adultery, though. No, it was taking on a wife. Yeah. But uh, by, by contemporary standards, it well, is Well, I mean, adultery. assuming that her husband was dead. Yeah. Right. So um, because polygamy is acceptable, but if you're, you know. But if you're taking another a living if, man's wife and then the yeah. guy's still alive, that breaks yes, the code. Yes. Okay. Um sodomy was punished by death um anybody who was uh caught lying was severely punished however there were also certain um you know aside from kind of the social codes there are also a lot of environmental laws if you think about it um you were not allowed to bathe or wash your hands in the river you had to scoop it out with a vessel and wash and clean yourself up there so you wouldn't be poisoning the river um you were <laughs> you were not allowed so this is the one thing that i think kind of does is not religiously tolerant for for jewish people um you were not allowed to determine anything unclean everything was yep everything was clean or unclean it was all the same there was no definition of either you had to wear your clothes until they worn out you weren't allowed to wash them <laughs> it's very very interesting and no littering if you were writing out on a if you were writing out in a line of troops and a soldier ahead of you drops something, it is your job to pick it up. That's right. You just and have then you to... find that soldier who dropped it, and you kill him. Well, okay, maybe not so that So is that <laughs> where it comes from? Do we really have Genghis, sorry, Genghis Khan to thank for the no littering law? Well, probably not, because no. people littered for hundreds of years after that. But... Who knew? Yeah. I'm just saying, folks, who knew? But it's really interesting. And also, um, you know, another thing to point out kind of with this code is that women were also held in a much higher regard than was common for the time. Yeah. It was by no means equal no. anybody who says that this was like gender equality is no <laughs> not quite and um, these were these were mongol women yes to be specific not, yes not the women who were being captured and you know, right sold into slavery obviously. right i mean if they were taken on as a wife they were being respected right um and all those children were respected any any children the person that the because at that father, point they were part of the tribe anyhow yes so they were already considered mongols yes this is not an ethnic thing this is no this is a tribal thing exactly um but the women were sought as um, respected advisors. If a woman, were, uh, if her husband were to pass away, the woman, the the first wife, the the lead wife, would be would take on an inheritance of all of that and would be in charge of the tribe until her sons were of age. Right. So there was a, a certain amount of concession there that you know women were they had far more power than you know what was previously accepted. And then later on in, in Mongol Empire. A lot of the women were um, also trained 
in a military fashion so they could actually um you know shoot arrows and ride like the men they just didn't necessarily participate in the army it reminds it me was a lot more of a this, defense kind of thing. that reminds me a lot of the samurai episode we were talking about how their women were trained as well but they were trained in the event that their household was invaded yeah. so they could defend again that was a little bit later not necessarily during Genghis's sure. rule but this was a code that he kind of set up the interesting thing about this code however was that it was never written down yes and it wasn't allowed to be written down yeah. um well, his his one of his brothers actually kind of be, was named like the high judge, the high ruler over the Yasa. Um, but it was that it was never allowed to be written down because um, it was you could enforce it a lot better if it was written down. And they wanted to be able to have a little bit more flexibility. Sure. <laughs> yeah, but they did have to enforce it. They did have to enforce it. And they did have to send yeah. its message to mm-hmm. every corner of the empire as it did change and evolve. And how did they do that, Eric? With yams. Delicious yams. With yam. Yams With delivered by carrier pigeons. No, not actual yams, but the yam, the which yam. was the Mongol version of the Pony Express, except way cooler. Yeah, way cooler. So the idea between behind this is pretty simple. I mean, it, it, you hit it on the head. It's essentially the Pony Express. They basically right? created the first postal system. Yeah. You have these uh, relay stations that are set up throughout the empire. Uh, and each one is uh, about 150 miles apart from each other. Yeah. And I think by the end of uh, Kublai Khan's uh, reign, it was 1,400 of these outposts. Yeah, and for yeah. the record, those who don't know, Kublai Khan was Genghis Khan's, Genghis Khan's grandson. Genghis, Genghis, Genghis. Genghis. It's C-H-I-N-I-S. Or, no. No, I-S-H? No, I, no, no it's C-H-I-N-N-G-U-S. Yes, thank you. So That's how you pronounce it. Right. Genghis Khan. Let's just acknowledge we've probably said it 47 different ways this episode. That's no, I mean, we said Genghis Khan a lot, but occasionally our American comes out and we say Genghis Khan, no. but whatever. Anyhow, the point being that there are these relay stations set up all around, and they're very well staffed. Mm-hmm. They're well armed. They have fresh horses, and they serve for a single rider to be able to move somewhere between 140 and 200 miles in a single day. Yeah, which, uh, well... What That's I, impressive. So what I yeah. heard, what I heard that was that by by certain accounts, they were going 200 kilometers a day, which is quite a bit. Yeah. When you look at the Pony Express, when the most that they were able to do was about 120 kilometers a day. Right. It's still over 100 miles. Oh, yeah. No, no, it's a doozy. Uh, and by horseback, <laughs> given that this is the 13th mm-hmm. century, yeah, that's damn impressive. Yeah. Folks. Well, and the, I mean, it's just straight a rider on horseback if you're delivering a single message. However, when they were transporting goods, they, I mean, they had a wagon service too, where they were, you know, hauling I- actual items. Yeah. So I mean, it was really sophisticated for the time. And this was the safest way to travel because you were traveling mm-hmm. along these preset, you know, paths, mm-hmm. and therefore, if you encountered a messenger along the way and you were being attacked or you had just been attacked, you could call for help. Yeah. Relatively easily. Yeah. Uh, these are also stations for his ears to be set up, his spies, mm-hmm. who'd be watching as trade would come through and keeping an eye and, and reporting back everything and anything they were seeing, yeah. any suspicious activity. And what's really fascinating is that, um, I, you know, I was kind of seeing some articles in, in National Geographic about this, that there are riders who go out and run this, run a race. They do a horse race um, on horseback of this former, you know, postal service route 
And they say it's like one of the hardest races to do. Yeah, absolutely. And it's and it was so effective that the Russian Tsardom actually adopted it and kept it going long after the last of the of the Mongols had been ejected from Russia. Mm-hmm. Right, right. I mean, first of all, again, you look at the, the Mongols and you look at Napoleon and you also look at Hitler later on. You really just never learn. You really can't take Russia. Like, it's just it's just too big. You can get parts of it, but you can't get all of it. Well, it's funny you say that because while it wasn't under, well, actually it may, it may have been under Genghis Khan, but the the only successful wintertime invasion of Russia was conducted by the Mongols. Yep. They were the Fair. only ones to do it. That's being said, you still couldn't take Russia. It's so, just too big. But so like Crimea, it, sure. And It's funny that Hitler couldn't do it. Napoleon couldn't do it. But the Hitler-Napoleon fusion that was Genghis Khan could do it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Because Russia was taken. And, and the first first steps of that began in the last mm-hmm. few years of Genghis Khan's life. Yes. and this All was, of Russia, really? Well, no, no not, not all, all of Russia. Russia no, but, but up to Kiev, I believe. Yeah, and they were... Well, that's what I'm saying. I mean, like, and they were... All of Russia. I mean, well, they were butt up against Hungary. Yeah. And, and what you... <laughs> And what you, what Just you, the way you said that said it for me. What, what you think of Russia today was not the Russia of old. I mean, most of that was just tundra. Yeah. You know, and that's what Unusable a lot of Russia land. still is today. Is yeah. A bunch of tundra. Yeah. It's very geographically impressive when you look at it on a map. When you're actually there, it's kind of crappy. Yeah. That's fair. Fair. And so in these last few years of Genghis Khan's life was when he had to kind of decide who was going to be his successor. And this is where, you know, that that conflict comes back where where his oldest son, Josh, and uh, Chagatai, and Ogadai, and Tol, uh, Tolu were basically, you know, kind of fighting over who was going to take over all this land and everything. And, you know, you have to understand that Genghis Khan was not running all of this stuff independently. His, his four sons, his four first sons, were absolutely at his side and helping guide almost all the warfare that he was doing. They yeah. were they were right there in the thick of it. So Well, he was also in his 60s at this point. At so this point, he was in his 60s. Um, you know, he's going out and he had a mishap on his horse, got a little injured, got a fever from it, was feeling a little weaker, yeah. but still sending out troops to conquer things. So I mean, yeah, but that being said, reaching your 60s in the 13th century. Oh, I know. It is a decent Very age. impressive. Especially living the life of Genghis Khan. Yeah, seriously. Yes. <laughs> seriously. Um, and so he kind of starts off by saying that he wants to give everything to Josh because that's his, Josh is his first son. Yeah. And um, I believe it was uh, Chagatai that steps up and is like, oh, hey, hold up. He's not really your son yeah we all know what happened he's not really your son and um you know this is where jenga steps up and he says hey did you not come from the same womb are you disrespecting your mother and your brothers and all this other stuff and um and what ends up happening is he kind of starts to say okay i'm going to give my most diplomatic son ogaday kind of the the largest chunk of land and kind of oversight on the other areas i'm going to give tolu my youngest son the the mongol area our original homeland because the youngest son was um traditionally in mongol culture considered kind of the hearth son the one that stays close to home and then 
Chagatai ended up getting the uh, Middle Eastern area, the kind of the per former Persian Empire area, and Josh was getting the front that was right up on Russia and that whole side. But what ended up happening was Josh was, uh, ended up being killed one year before Genghis dies. Yeah. And there is some rumor that that was on purpose mm -hmm. because Genghis knew the conflict it would cause should he have left that chunk of land to Josh, that people would have been really upset and would have they would have ended up having more infighting had he stayed alive. So he are you saying he had his adopted son killed? Uh, there, there is a a rumor that he was purposefully poisoned. Wow. Now, who led that is unknown. Yeah. It, I think it's less likely to be Genghis Khan, but most likely one of his advisors or something no yeah. no one of his half brothers probably perpetrated it Maybe it could have been dead anyhow yeah but nobody knows nobody yeah. knows nobody ever will and it's honestly and again that's also speculation and well, a lot of things written down yeah well so well, actually at this point things are being written down because if you look at um the biggest source of where we get information about Genghis khan and his family um comes from uh the secret history of the mongols and this was a text that was written down by basically a ghostwriter who was hired by the family um, and they just dictated at him and he just wrote down what they what they told him was yeah. their family history. And then he ended up following them around for a very long time. And what's interesting about this text is that it was you know translated and translated and translated. And there's certain um, certain elements of it that they feel um, have been tampered with by translators. Um, especially how women are portrayed in this. Uh, we have a deeper understanding now that, you know, women were, of course, seen as more equal. Um, but having been adapted by Chinese translators, there were parts where um, things were changed from, you know, she is a woman, let's take her word to, let's take her word even though she's a woman. Right. So, you know, kind of like a little bit more disparaging kind of stuff that were that was kind of put into the translation. So very interesting. Um, but the secret history of Mongols is where we're basically getting at it, getting all of it. And it was effectively as close to a firsthand resource as we're ever going to get. OK. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's firsthand in the sense that you're talking dictated, with people yeah. who were dictated by people who were there, who mm -hmm. were witnessing. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think that, that's valid. But it wasn't like fact checked. Right. And I, I you know it's funny because I can't help but think of the the Shakespearean parallel here of King Lear, who obviously wasn't wasn't real, but the idea that the, the Yeah, to split the lands. Exactly. And yeah. the conflict that ensues when you do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it makes yeah. you wonder where he got his inspiration from. Obviously this is not the only leader where this has happened, but Sure, there's also, you know, Alexander the Great who kinda of did the same of thing. Of course, mm -hmm. of course. But nevertheless, like it's that trope that seems to transcend culture. Yeah. That you know, when someone acquires power, once that person's legacy is ended, maintaining that power is nigh impossible mm -hmm. because when you have his cadre of followers and close advisors trying to divvy that up, it just yeah. all falls apart. Well, if you don't have one son who emerges as being equally charismatic, powerful, and influential as, as the parent, mm -hmm. then that's the kind of thing that's going to happen. Yeah. Not to say that they weren't all you know, influential in their own right, but not obviously to the level of their father. If they were, one of them would have essentially preceded him uh, in an equal control of the yeah. country. I will tell you the amount of fights that my brother and I have gotten into <laughs> over who gets the really cool cookie jar when mom dies. 
I, I'm telling you, it like inheritances get nasty. Oh, Layer yeah. up. Oh, it's yeah. true. <laughs> inheritance and money really changes people. I've seen families get torn apart by it for far lesser, yeah. you know, amount of resources too. Um, well, speaking but, of death. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so let's get to it. Well, we don't know a lot about exactly how he died. There's lots of different so stories. So much, yeah, conjecture about Some that. Some say he's injured while hunting, and others say that he's betrayed and killed by people he holds confident. And mm-hmm. others say that he, you know, dies of natural causes. And nobody really knows for or sure. Or perhaps. He was 66 in, you know, 13th century. Or yeah. perhaps <laughs> at age 66, he went hunting with his closest friends who were planning to kill him and actually he had even poured poison in his cup. But before he drinks it, he had a stroke and passed out and died. Wait, so he went hunting with Dick Cheney and Wallace Shawn. (laughs) (laughs) And essentially you're trying to say he's Robert Baratheon. (laughs) I'm just saying it's possible that everything happened. Yeah, okay, there we go. (laughs) So he's been Robert Baratheon to death. Uh, Yeah. Well, well, if you follow the later Game of Thrones, I don't want to spoil it, but it Turns out it may have not have been the boar that, that did him in. So. Well, that's my point. Yeah. Right. Yes. So uh, what is interesting is that for someone as high profile as Genghis Khan, one might expect a high profile burial to mm-hmm. follow this man. But that was no. not the tradition. Oh, that was so people. not the Mongol tradition. It's crazy. We have no idea where he is. We have no idea where he is. But can I tell you how freaking cool this is? Because remember how we talked about earlier that one of their really cool war tactics was diverting rivers? So the thought is, is that he was buried somewhere and that they diverted a river over his burial site so nobody could find him. That's one of the things. How freaking cool is that? Yeah. That is that is the second coolest like way to have a send-off. Next to a Viking funeral. Well, not just that, but it, I mean, actually, it just makes sense because you, you ensure that his enemies won't come and desecrate his remains, basically. Yeah, true. Well, or that he'll just be grave robbed in general. Yeah. That too. And, and, and this was tradition of, of these great leaders is to have a funeral procession that is very low profile, that mm-hmm. has a small uh, group of people that leads out into the middle of God knows where bury them and then potentially also kill anyone else who was there to be witness to yeah. it and yeah chances are they kind of knew that was coming and were probably okay with it because mm-hmm. uh you know tradition would then dictate that they would almost certainly join him and you know, yeah oh in they the basically afterlife. set out and killed witnesses along the way yeah yeah, yeah. um and then through his mongol then threw his body in a hole said good riddance and threw a river over it no yeah. big deal yeah no big deal. Threw a river nbd over it. you know <laughs> With this is all this has been so informative and so great, and I can't help but say that my first exposure to Genghis Khan was Bill and Ted's excellent. I know adventure. I was like sitting there, I was like, what, at which point does he get picked up by Bill and Ted and go to right, you know, right. San Diego? Right. Genghis yeah. Khan. Um, <laughs> but clearly, the history you guys have shared out is a very different depiction than what we see in that gem of the early yeah. '90s. You're seeing a guy who is sophisticated, though not a form, not formally educated who is tactical, who is politically savvy. He was a great orator. Great orator as well. This was a very complex man. Obviously, he made he committed atrocities for mm-hmm. which he will never be forgotten. But at the same time, you have to acknowledge that there was a certain genius to this man. Sure. As well. Well, it's one of those things where it's a cultural context, right? Yeah, if, exactly. If he comes from a culture where going out and raiding and pillaging and all that other stuff is fully accepted yeah why is he gonna stop doing that if he doesn't see it as wrong and not just 
accepted but expected yeah you know it's it's a part of the the tradition it's part of the culture mm-hmm. if you're not doing this you're not the leader yeah. this is just how mm-hmm. it is that's Sorry. not saying that we're going out and condoning people to go raid rape and pillage and kill no. but we have to put it into the context of the time yeah. and into the culture that, yeah. that's a part of it all yeah and you know i think it's very unfair to treat him on the same level as somebody like hitler who was a systematic murderer somebody who yeah designed a system to dispatch as many human beings as possible, his mass murder that he committed was a product of his of his conquer of his conquest, of mm-hmm. his conquering. That's how he effectively did yeah. it. Yeah. And how his descendants would do it. And as a result, Genghis Khan is thought to be indirectly responsible for the death of forty million people which at this time in human history accounts for about 11% of the world's That's population. That's a lot of people. And then he was also he's also accredited for now creating one heck of a population as well because when you kill that many people, well you got to replenish. That's right. And he had a lot of wives. Oh yeah, he did. And there's like some estimated oh in in Asia and and China specifically, there's an estimated like 6% of of Asian males that are somehow descended from Genghis Khan himself. Yeah. Wow. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. It's like one in one in fourteen yeah. or something like something that. Something like that. Yeah. 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 I mean, but I see your point about Hitler because you're talking about. I mean, it is very different. Like you said. Yeah. It's actually. I. I can't believe. I'm just now coming to this, but to make another pop culture parallel, it's very Klingon actually, and it I is? can't well, believe. Yeah, dude. <laughs> I can't believe. We're totally designed from a combination of Viking and Mongol and just mm-hmm. put them all together and in spaceships. I, I know you knew that, but being the, I am not a Trekkie. Yeah. Like it's, it's really f- kind of fun and fascinating to see the amount of just how much this culture and this man resonates through history and now into pop culture too. I mean, just to think about yeah. too, if you look, if you go to a country like Kazakhstan, which is definitively now Eastern Europe there is still a very heavily Mongol influence mm-hmm. just by virtue of the fact that a thousand years ago, the Mongols had taken that part of the, of the world. You know, the horse riding traditions of Russia all come from the Mongols. Mm-hmm. You have the introduction of gunpowder into Europe brought in by the Mongols. You have uh, a huge and enormous lasting impact. You have the introduction of Islam into the Eastern world. As thanks to to the Mongols. And we're not just talking about Genghis Khan. We're talking about he was the flashpoint. He was the start of this all. Mm-hmm. And it would be then his descendants who would really uh, explode it and make it even even bigger and have its hugest lasting impacts into the world today. Yeah. And I think we have to do that in its own right, in its own episode, uh, because we just we just don't have the you, time for you, it. You, no. you can't. You can't. You can't do it. I mean, Kublai Khan alone deserves his own episode mm-hmm. and he was right at the very end I mean, right yeah. to mention everyone who was in between right so you know there's there's more to this story folks mm-hmm. stay tuned i'm sure we're going to revisit this topic in yep. the future uh sarah good on you you know you really took the lead on this one i came in with a whole bunch of stuff and you just kind of said it way better than me way sooner than i did so good on you i you know what that was the product of listening to about four and a half or five hours of podcasts about Genghis Khan. <laughs> so there we go. We did the listening so that you didn't have to. Wait, yeah, no, you're still listening, but that's but, okay. But Keep we did. Us. We did a condensed version. <laughs> we that's took right, the yeah. best parts and consolidated it into about an hour. Yeah, of really good yeah. Genghis. But Khan there, history. there actually there was a really good one. If you just search uh, Genghis Khan, there is a BBC episode. It's about a half an hour long where mm. they actually interview a couple of um, 
you know, scholars and experts. I thought you were going to say survivors. No, no, no. No, scholars and experts. And it was actually a really, really fascinating listen. Mm. So if you want a little bit more information, that's a really good source for it. And there's tons. There's so much about this. But just understand that you're probably going to have to read a few sources that are like, he was amazing. He was one of the greatest leaders. It was Pax Mongolica with everybody being so peaceful. And then there was another part where it's like, he was a terrible warlord. So, uh, you know, there's kind of a... Read them all and take all from them because they're all kind of getting to the same point. Same point. So... An influential figure in human history. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, with that, Brian, do we have any feedback to go over? This week in Listener Feedback. We do have a few. First of all, thank you guys. I owe you guys a huge debt of thank you for... Doing a really spectacular episode on national parks. It turned out great. Um, it was fun. And this woman who is supposedly my rival, um, bring it, woman. I'm just saying. <laughs> she like, word vomit? Really? Yeah, I, sometimes. You know, that, yeah, sometimes. That, I mean, I know that. Well, I mean, you I totally get. But, oh, but, but, you know what's but, actually... Like me? Really? I think what really? I I think she actually was quoting me from one of my first episodes on there where I actually <laughs> didn't did, yeah. I actually quote like yeah. was quoted as saying the word vomit from my male counterparts. That's right. <laughs> I guess so. But it just it's it's so much harsher when it's coming from a listener than I mean, <laughs> from, than a, from me who you expect it from. <laughs> exactly. I've exactly. had a few verbal diuretic episodes, but I don't know if I really do a verbal whole lot diuretic. of diuretic word vomit i'm just are you okay. feeling feeling verbally con- constipated listeners on history <laughs> clear it right up <laughs> jesus um we do have a few that we wanted to share um just recently though we actually only have a couple but we'll read one this episode and then we'll read one more next episode we also have some twitter feedback we wanted to share too um i'll start, share that one first we, i posted an article about how there are many colleges that are not requiring that history majors, history majors, are not required to take U.S. history. What? And exactly. I, my thoughts exactly. And uh, <laughs> Jacob Lloyd, who has been a loyal listener, and I say his full name because he's has had no problem sharing his full name, and plus it's his Twitter handle, uh, says it's very frustrating as a person who he actually wants to be a teacher. Yeah. That his col- potential colleagues aren't going to be held to the same standard. No, I, you kind of, I'm sorry, you have to, because yeah. what you're, what you're taught in high school is not enough. Well, and, and I mean, I, I see both sides of it, but I lean toward the side of you should take it no matter what, because if you're going to be majoring in history, they lean to the fact that U.S. history is a pretty much across every liberal arts school is a general, uh, general education requirement. But if you are a majoring in history, it's not as required because you're expected to get the breadth of history yeah. To begin with. Yeah. I still think, even that being the case, if you want to have any sort of credibility as a historian, or even as just a high school history teacher, you have to take U.S. history. Because, first of all, if you're American, it's just important to know the story of where you came from. It really is. You know? And I don't want to, to you know, espouse American exceptionalism or anything like that, but... We are a highly influential country, whether we like it or not. Exactly. And whether it's a good thing or a bad thing is a different, you know, that's exactly. left to be well, said. We, we, we've done exactly. both. We've done both. And it's, and it's too much to ask a history major to know the history of every single country um, on the planet. But with your permission, <laughs> I would like to read the feedback email for this episode. Go for it. Because it's kind of a little personal. Um, so this comes from Sam. Subject, I hate your faces. Message, just kidding. 
Hopefully that got your attention. It certainly did. Anyways, what's up, nerds? I'm a longtime listener, first-time feedbacker. I love that title. You guys are all feedbackers now. I think I just made it through your entire back catalog, ending with the Christmas Carol reading. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Everyone did a great job with that episode. I'll skip most of that you guys are as good as rainbow-flavored Belgian waffles bit because you <laughs> get doted upon all the time. I will, however, say one thing that I deeply admire about your podcast. You guys have a lot of integrity. In a lot of media nowadays, nobody can put away their petty arguments, and it's nice that you guys are rational and charitable in the way that you look at things. I'm saying this as a Catholic seminarian who is constantly having to defend their position on many issues. While I know some Catholic views don't necessarily coincide with the views of the secular world, it's nice to be able to just learn from and laugh at people who can put everything aside for a second and just talk about history in an objective manner. That might be the best compliment we've gotten. Yeah, that was really nice. Yeah. So far. You should Sam, see the fight club that we have after episodes are done. Oh, Sam, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Let me get to the rest of your message because this is also <laughs> equally as cool. All of this being said, as a seminarian, I have a pretty good knowledge of Catholic history and a huge network of Catholic historians and canon lawyers at my disposal. Canon lawyers are people who literally get law degrees in canon law. A lot of their work tends to go toward like uh, defending people when they want to get an annulment, for example. Um, but they, they definitely, and when you're brought up against trial against the church, so they they definitely have a place. The graduation ceremony is also fascinating as it involves them being shot from a cannon. Thank you. Yeah. Good night. It wouldn't be an episode without Eric making a bad <laughs> pun. Uh, so he continues, uh, at his disposal, so if you guys need any research help in that department, Shoot me an email. Also, an episode idea. Last summer, I last summer I did in the Camino de Santiago, a pilgrimage which entails hiking across Spain. I was wondering if you guys would do an episode on pilgrimages from all religions and their historical significance. Anyways, sorry for writing a book. Keep it nerdy, y'all. Sam, that was awesome. That was great. That was really, really great. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, we rarely get an opportunity for someone to leverage them saying, hey, if you want help with research, um, Sam, I respect the hell out of you. Um, if we ever do another Catholic episode, you will probably get, be getting an email from me. Um, we'll have to talk about it off off of, uh, off of the radio, but might even want to have you on the show. Mm, I know Sarah doesn't, isn't so keen on that, but... I just want people to go through an audition process first. Yeah, we want to know if you have the right voice for it and if you have the right cadence and the right speaking skills for it. Um, and I just want you to bring food. <laughs> <laughs> or drinks. Yes, that indeed. helps. That's but, the only requirement. I have. Uh, Sam, thank you. Thank oh, you so yeah. much. Oh, yeah. If you're seminarian, you probably got access to some sweet wine. Well, there you go. The good wine, too. Yeah, and some dry flavorless crackers. Yeah, no. Well, <laughs> Catholic, so there's actually, there's actually specific rules I'm going to get Catholic for a second. Oh There's God. actually specific rules to what wine can actually be used as sacramental wine. Only Shiraz. So, you can't have box wine. I found that out. No, 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 no. It's even stricter than that. So there are certain wineries that specifically make wine for for sacramental purposes. And a lot of them were the, the protection of the papacy for a while. But basically, um, the rules are it has to be how wine would have been made, as close to as wine would have been made 
in the first century. So there, there really can't be any additives to it. A lot of wines have sulfites in them now. Sacramental wine has can have no sulfites in it, for mm. example. Yeah, sulfites are what helps, you know, clean the bottle. And, and it's also been known to give people some headaches, mm-hmm, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, if you're on chemotherapy for certain kinds of cancer, you can't really have sulfites either. Oh, well, it, it's, it the reason, it's the reason why my mom can't have red wine because she's allergic to sulfur. Yeah, that too. So um, not so great. Now, conversely, it keeps the wine from going bad yeah. when you, you know, when you ship it and it makes sure the bottle stays nice and sterile mm-hmm. so um so what you're rules. saying is not two buck check nope all right even though it's not three buck check that no. doesn't sound the same but if you get your hands on some on some wine that's sacramentally like mm-hmm. good it's some good wine i'm just saying mm-hmm. anyway sarah tell our listeners how can you be a feedbacker how can you be a feedbacker well you can send an owl <laughs> much like harry received westerosi raven as we've established too no yeah but i'm talking about harry potter now we're t- getting away from Game of Thrones for a second, Brian. Calm down. <laughs> can I have somebody send a Pokemon? <sighs> sure. Sure. Can we, have a, can we have a Pokemon? Are there messenger Pokemon? I don't know. Well, there's several birds and or burrowing animals. I think we can make this work. Yeah. Or if you just chuck a Pokeball with a message oh. in it or something. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know anything about you Pokemon. You can also fire up or, the old telegraph, too. Yeah, you can do that. you could send it on the yam. Or, yeah, ooh, send that's, yeah, 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 yeah. That's send, great. Send it through the yam. We're going to get yams in the mail now. <laughs> That'd be rad. <laughs> Check um, the P.O. box. Just if, we have, like, moldy wait. yams in there. Yeah. If you would like to send us a yam, you can go to nerdonomy.com and find our P.O. box there, and you can actually send us one in the mail. Um, otherwise, you can click that Talk to Us button on the website, and it'll shoot an email to all of our inboxes. If you want to hit us up on social media, you can do through do so through Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Nerdonomy. You will find us. I promise you that. Um, but if you happen to be kicking around our website, what you can do is click that Donate button. You see, we are in a position where we need a new computer. Um, so if you want us to keep making these episodes this is not a personal computer this is one that we strictly use just for recording um and it is a little bit on the fritz which has made recording very very difficult with certain upgrades to garage band i'm looking at you uh our computer can't quite hang with it so we need a few extra dollars to make that happen so if you want to give us a kind donation we'd really really appreciate it if you can't however what we would like is for you to spread the word of nerd tell your friends all about us um, get Especially them lis- your wealthy friends. Totally yeah, get them listening. Friends. Encourage them to donate. Um, shake them by the ankles. Collect the loose change and send it to us. Uh, <laughs> or you can also give us a review on iTunes or whatever your uh, podcast form you listen to us on. Thank you so much, Sarah. And well, nerds, it is that time. So until we meet again, stay nerdy. Tune into our next exciting episode. Same nerd time, same nerd channel. Nerdonomy.com. Bye. Adios. Later. Gotta sack them all. Oh my god. Genghis Khan, go. <laughs> Gotta pillage everything. Burn stuff to the ground. Genghis Khan, go! Girl, you do you. <laughs> Damn right. You do you, boo.